Hey, Bob. So I have a bunch of emails from the listeners, but I'm going to guess that we're going to get into some some uh, personal stuff, you and me. And mm. so I thought we would make this episode a patron-only episode. What do you say? I'm a patron. I get to hear it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirkonda. I'm a therapist, and I'm also a professor. And I'm a patron <laughs> and a therapist and practice in Seattle, and you and me are old friends. So if you aren't a patron, you're not going to hear this whole episode. But if you are a patron, you I'm will. I'm a patron. Yeah. And if you want to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com. Become a patron. We're also asking that people become an annual patron because when you become an annual patron instead of a monthly patron, when, and you get a discount at annual, then it actually helps us with our planning. So go to patreon.com, become a patron, and you can listen to this whole episode. Do it today. Right, Bob? Right on. I, I have to change my membership. I, I'm, I'm a monthly. Oh, change it to annual. I'll change it to annual. So, Bob, as usual, we have a bunch of emails from the listeners emailing in questions for you and me to answer. Let's answer them. What do you say? I say, you're wearing a T-shirt right now that says, take care of yourself because you deserve it. Yeah. Just getting that in early. <laughs> yeah. I asked the pod wife if you had one of these shirts this morning, and she said you didn't. I do not. So, uh, Berto has one. Oh. But I thought you need to have one. Oh, okay. I'll get one. I'll order one later today. No, no, no. She'll order it for you. Oh, she, well, she's, right. You're probably the same size as me, right? Uh, Anonymous patron writes in. She says, Bob, when you feel like a partner is cheating on you, how do you prevent yourself from getting into investigative mode? My boyfriend has cheated on me before mm. because I recognized he has his own set of traumas. I decided to stay with him, but I can't help but get into detective mode to see if he is lying pretty much all the time. Mm. I want to stop assuming he's cheating on me 24-7. I often ask for reassurance, but I don't think it's fair to ask him all day. I have a therapist, but curious what you've tried for yourself if you had this experience too. Bob, what do you think? Yeah, I had that experience not in my not in my marriage in a previous relationship, but it did spill over into my marriage. So, um I'll be curious to hear what you have to say about this. Um but um I the things that come to mind is um not finding something is not very satisfying. It you don't feel better when you don't find something. You you still feel like shit. Uh, a lot of people, what they do, if there's been a betrayal like this, is they'll um, they'll do the looking together. Like, they'll, you know, never, now it's everything's electronic. So, um, maybe what could be done is you guys could comb through partner's email or comb through partner's texts or whatever it is that people use and, um, together, though, and... Um, to help you settle, because the point of this is to help you settle. The, the the thing is, is that your body, your nervous system is in fight or flight. This isn't like you're being some kind of jealous jerk and your partner isn't like, you know. So so I'm presuming, though, that your partner isn't still cheating on you. I don't really know. We didn't we don't know that. But but it sounds like that's that's a let's at least start with that presumption. Um, um So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, is um, there may be an attachment injury. And uh, if there's an attachment injury, which you could define as never again, like never again will I trust, right? That that would be like a way to think about attachment injury. Um, you could you could work it through with your partner. Um, generally, um, it's hard to do on your own. It might be a good idea to find a good couple counselor to help you through it. There's um, the EFT people have an actual manualized treatment. Call it attachment injury and repair. Um, uh, so anyways, um, what it involves as I understand it is, um, mm, mm, sharing with your partner, I'm going to talk about this in a very cursory way, sharing with your partner, what actually was wounded. Like I know a story about somebody where there was a betrayal and, um, the, the, one of the people in the relationship contacted an ex and um the other person you know found out about it or whatever and um and um it turned out that the actual betrayal wasn't contacting the ex the actual betrayal was you didn't talk to me about this before you did it you didn't talk to me and tell me how unhappy you were before you you left you know you sort of left but how before you did that 
And what I need is to know that if it ever happens again, that you will, you'll talk to me first. And when the partner agreed, yeah, that they would do that, that was a, that went a big way towards healing the injury. And then the other thing is, the other side of the thing is, um, when the injuring partner gets to talk about what the hell happened, like, why did they do it? Because, you know, they love you and they don't want to, they're not wanting to hurt you. Um, and in fact, partners with betrayals, they, they generally aren't thinking about partner and certainly not trying to hurt partner. They usually, you know, trying to do something else that isn't malicious. It's just, um, awful it causes <laughs> some of the worst pain. Um, but it isn't because they're seeking to have that happen. They just, it's just happening. Um, not, almost like a, almost like a side effect. That's not a really, that's a, maybe a hard way to put it. Uh, I'm rambling a bit, aren't I? No, it's all good. Yeah. yeah. It is a side effect from something else almost all the time. Some people are sadists or psychopaths or something else, and they will be trying to pull one over on you. But the vast majority of people who are cheating, it is born out of suffering, some sort of trauma, some sort of lack of awareness of the self, some sort of shame. It doesn't make it okay. But the narrative usually is, oh, he's just trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's just a dog. And I've, I've literally never seen that in a human being. Yeah. Uh, it's a very strange, um, you know, it's interesting, not always, but the, when a man cheats, the assumption is he's, he's a dog and he's, you know, trying to have his cake and eat it too. And he's a sex crazed maniac. <laughs> and when a woman cheats, it's because she is being treated badly by her partner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> not always, of course. I, I've said that before, and the people I was emailing, no, that doesn't. Yeah, I, I get it. It's not a generalizable statement, but there is a cultural uh, assumption, and I've seen it in, even in the yeah. clinical room. I've seen therapists when a female will say that she cheated. The therapist will, on average, anecdotally in my life, when I'm training people, will ask, will have this notion that. Well, she must have done it for a good reason. Yeah. And the husband cheats, it almost, they almost never think that. The th no. therapist almost never thinks, well, he must be doing it for right. a good reason. He must be doing it because she's treating him badly. They, you know, they, there's almost never empathy for the man who cheats. No. And there's, there's not always necessarily empathy for a woman who cheats, but I, I find there's, there's more, which, of course, makes zero sense. There's yeah. just, like, no logic behind that at all. It, it's all just based on cultural notions that... Uh, and 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 that'll this will even affect the couples themselves. When I'll be treating men who are cheating, they will often even frame it to themselves like I must be a dog, I must be a terrible person. Sure. Instead of thinking about what right. row they went down, shame wise or relational trauma wise, that that resulted in this symptom. And I've also treated women who cheated, who would say to me essentially that their cheating was completely justified. I, I've, I've, I've treated women who were in the act of cheating and would tell me that like there was, yeah, I'm current, you know, they wouldn't say this in a callous way, but they'd basically be telling me, yeah, I'm currently cheating on my husband. And they would essentially have this attitude that it's completely justified. And I, it, I, I imagine there are situations where it might be justified. Like he is abusing her oh. you know, or something like that. And, and she wants out of the relationship, but she feels like she can't because she feels like, She's going to get hurt. You can imagine yeah. a situation that that would make maybe some moral sense. It's hard to know. Of course, everyone has to make their own choice on that. But need a port in the storm or something. Yeah, or a transition yeah. person to right. help you kind of get out of a relationship. Right. Um, but now I will also say that I've treated men who also felt very entitled, and I've treat, treated women who sure. were cheating who ex were extremely shameful of yeah. their behavior. Of course. Um, but. Uh, so I'm sure I'm getting all emails for that one. Cause I did the last time. I think I've mentioned this, what I just said five years ago. And I still remember all the emails I got. You know that line from city slickers. Uh, what's that? Women need a reason to have sex. Men just need a place. Yeah. <laughs> right. All those things are silly because yeah. men and women, generally speaking on average, both like sex or not, depending on who they are. Anyway, sure. there's just all, there's just all these genderized. Yeah. Anyway, point is, is getting back to an honest patron's email here. Right is that you are saying that you, you know, he cheated on you. And so now you are very frequently in detective mode 24 seven. You're very mm. worried. And yeah. what Bob said is very good in terms of it, to focus on the cheating is to, to suffer because at any moment 
all he has to do is decide to go down that road and he can go down that road. He can go down that road. If your relationship is awesome, you can go down the road. If your if your relationship is terrible, but what you can focus on is building secure attachments, which yeah. is much less likely to produce the side effect of cheating. Yes, and that you have much more of a of a your finger on the pulse of that. You'll you'll never have a finger on the pulse of what is he doing right now. You will have a finger on the pulse of are we close? Yes. Yeah. Does, does he love me? Mm-hmm. Is he dedicated to me? And so. So you say, you know, I don't want to ask for reassurance all day long. Why not? Why not? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, he, he needs to pay the price. Yeah. <laughs> he cheated. So if you need literally every day, you know, five times a day reassurance that he's not going to cheat, then that's the price he pays because that's the price that happened. It's rational for you to worry five times a day that he's going to cheat because he cheated on you. Yeah. And so if you need reassurance, then ask for it. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing there's nothing in your email that says he won't do that. So, you know, don't, don't be ashamed of that. Yeah. A, that. That is the road to recovery. I'm having a wave of fear right now. You are the only person who could put that to rest. Yep. I can't put that to rest. You are the one right. who can actually reassure me that you're not cheating or you don't want to cheat. So go for it, husband or boyfriend of mine. Right. You know? And if he pushes back, again, go to the couples therapy because when I talk to couples yeah. like this, I will turn to the boyfriend. I'll be like, "This is your. This is what you got to do. Yeah. Are you interested in building trust back? Yes. This is how you build trust. You do not build trust back by apologizing three times and saying you want to move on. That's just not how it works. Why aren't you over it already? Right. This, I always say to people, if you choose the relationship, then you choose these moments, and they can be very inconvenient, and they can come out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, and it could be eight years from now, and suddenly a wave of terror hits. It's never going to stop. So the idea that it should, or it could, or it ought to, or I'll never live it down is just, it's it's unrealistic. Right. Yeah. So ask for reassurance, and... If he has a script to follow, not like a insincere script, but a some kind of guidance on how to respond, because right. not a lot of people do, right. a couple of therapy can help with that, then, you know, most people I find, they take to it really well. And I, I and when I get the boy, you know, the cheaters of the world to realize and accept their, their reality, and I incentivize it by saying, this is the road to building trust, right. so, so you don't have to do this ever again, and so right. you don't have the blowups, and you don't have the sadness, and you have the relationship that you want then they're inspired to do it. And the big part of it is for the cheaters of the world to understand that they're not being shamed, that they're actually being honored. They're, the the right. cheated on partner is honoring you with right. the opportunity for you to make up for it rather than stuffing it and resenting you. They're actually being, they're actually giving you a gift yeah. of like, I'm suffering right now. I'm lobbing the ball over the plate. All you got to do is swing. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy. And here is the path, you know, here, choke up on the bat and just just take a nice easy bunt or whatever and you will get on base and everything will be fine uh so so there's that the other thing is is that the the goal the the main thing that i want to say to you Adonis patron is that when you are feeling this detective mode kick in it is a barometer of insecurity yeah. that's all that it is it's it it's not an indication of Oh, I have to find out if he's cheating on me. What's happening is I do not feel secure that he loves me. That's what's happening. And so for the people that I've worked with, what I will focus on primarily is secure attachment, not just even with the the partner, but in general. So what I have not, I don't know about you and honest patron, but I've worked with clients like you who... I will build over time secure attachments with me. I'll try to secure attachment with the spouse, secure attachments with other people. Once the security goes up, the fear goes down generally, and it gets. And when your fear goes down, it doesn't get dispersed to these thoughts of "Is he going to cheat on me?" Because you never really know if your spouse is going to leave you. You never really know if your spouse is going to cheat on you or not. There's just no way to know that. And to try to control that is to create suffering and to push someone away from you, frankly. But the notion popping into your head is a cognitive result of the underlying insecurity that you're feeling all the time. Mm. If you cure that, then you won't have the thing pop into your head. Right. When you have enough secure attachments in your life, the, the thought of, you know, like for me, for example, with my wife, could she cheat on me? Yeah. 
could she leave me tomorrow? Yeah, I, I know that. I, I know that I know that. But I don't think about it. But if I think about it right now and I think, well, what if that happened? I'd, I would say, well, that would be absolutely devastating and horrible, mm. but I'll mm. get through it. And I don't have any control over that. Mm-mm. But I'm 99.9% sure that's not going to happen. But I don't know for sure. Maybe it will. And I'll live and she'll live and everything will be fine. It'll suck. But I have other people. I have my family. I have Bob. I have Umberto. I have myself. I like myself. I have my colleagues. I have my work. I have my life. And I will be able to rely on them. And I'm a good enough person that I'm confident that I can see it through. Why do I feel like I'm a good enough person? Well, because I've been treated like I'm a good enough person. So... I hope that that helps all the jealous people out there because what people often focus on is how to eliminate the uncertainty, which is just not possible. Yeah, it's not. Patron Maggie from California says, hello, Kirk and Bob. I was sexually abused as a child and my therapist says that I have codependent tendencies of which I am fully aware and I work on. Just over a year ago, I ended a three-year relationship with, with my diagnosed NP, narcissistic personality disorder partner. The recovery from this breakup has been the saddest and most awful thing I have ever experienced, this breakup. Mm. We have tried to reconcile several times, but he becomes anxious, withdraws, and then does things that really hurt my feelings. It's heartbreaking and emotionally exhausting. Mm. Just when my therapist and I agreed that maintaining no contact with him is best for my own mental health, I listened to your podcast and am overcome with so much compassion for this man that I feel guilty for abandoning him. I think I have literally cried every single day for the past year. I'm so tired and very confused, and I don't want to be sad anymore. My therapist is awesome, and so are the both of you. Any insight would be appreciated. Bob, what do you think? Hmm. You ever heard that Zen parable about the farmer with the horse? Oh, um, this farmer has a horse, and one day the horse kicks out of the pen and runs down the field and gets away, and everybody in town sees that. And uh, says, oh, that's bad. And the Zen master, she sees that and she says, well, you know, we'll see. And then three days later, the horse comes back and it's got another horse with it. And now the farmer has two horses and he puts them both in the pen. And everybody in town sees that and says, oh, that's good. And the Zen master, she's like, well, we'll see. And then three days later, his son is trying to break the new horse and he gets thrown and he breaks his arm. And everybody in town sees that and says, oh, well, that's bad. And the Zen master says, well, you know, we'll see. And then three days later, the army sweeps through town, and they press all the young men into service, but they leave the boy alone because he's got a broken arm and he can't fight. And everybody in town says, that's good. And the Zen master says, well, we'll see. I don't know that... I hope you forgive me, person that wrote in. It doesn't sound like compassion that you feel. It sounds like grief. Um, and you don't know that the pain that he's going through is a bad thing. We'll see. Um, if you believe in your heart of hearts that it's probably best, that it's best for you and your own well-being and welfare to not have contact, and it's sort of like, I've gone down this road and then I've gone down it again and again and again and again, and it always kind of unfolds the same way, then um, perhaps what's being avoided is the fear of what it's like to actually let that one go. Perhaps. I don't know. That's my take on it based on what you wrote. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. And I have heard that parable before. I just didn't know the title of it. <laughs> and on some level, I like it because it. the lesson I pull from it is that when bad things happen, we don't necessarily know what it means. No. We don't know. the. We think we know. We think we know. Like, my life is over. It'll never be the same. Right. But we don't know because... You know, in the future, maybe it'll be a, a blessing and not right. a curse, or at least something will grow out of it, some post-traumatic growth of some sort or whatever, yeah. or it opens the door for some other opportunity that wouldn't have been present otherwise. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but on another level, the parable doesn't make sense to me because when good things happen, we're not supposed to celebrate, you know, or when the, when he breaks his arm, we're not supposed to be like, that sucks. Because it does suck. He it broke his suck. arm. Now, we didn't know him. that it would eventually uh, you know, help him to avoid entering the army. But, right. but it does also uh, promote this idea of 
stop trying to predict the future. Yeah. Like you just don't know, like this thing happened and it's okay. It sucked. You broke your arm, but you don't know exactly what that means because none of us know what the future holds. We can't, we can't predict that. We don't have any control over it and to act like it is to, is to only produce suffering. To enjoy having two horses, to enjoy safety, to feel sad about a broken arm or a lost horse. Those make sense, but we don't know what they mean. Right. And we don't have to know what they mean. And so, um, as we said, in, as I said in the last podcast, the pearl is the oyster's answer to irritation. Pearls are pretty cool. Yeah. But they don't get made unless there's an irritation. Yeah. So. I think another part of it for me is when I realize that everyone is suffering, it makes me feel better. <laughs> oh, right on. Not that I want other people to suffer. Nah. But, but there's this, I remember when I was younger, I'd have a real bad week and I'd just I would be, I just have this visual of driving down the road and I would see pedestrians and I would just go, they're not suffering. They're not suffering. They look happy. They look happy. I'm suffering. (laughs) And of course that's totally narcissistic and ridiculous, (laughs) but it feels that way. It feels like. Yeah, it does feel that way. Everyone else has it figured out. Everyone else is just having a happy day. Everyone else. And, and look at me, you know, when I realize though that everyone is suffering, my suffering is diminished great, greatly. Right. It's like, oh, okay where life has a lot of suffering in it. And there's a lot of people breaking up with people. And most suffering is people are ashamed to talk about. So the little shame or the little suffering you do hear about, you got to amplify times a thousand just to get an approximation of what amount of suffering is going on in the world, you know? Mm. So, and I guess I learned this when I became a therapist, these people would come into me, into my office you know, in our offices and talk about just the deep amount of suffering they're going through. And I thought, and then after that, I would start looking at other people. I'd be like, are they going to a therapist and talking about how much they're suffering too, even though they don't look like, cause my clients, they, they wouldn't look, I imagine they didn't look as though they were suffering to the outside world. You know, yeah. their lives were, you know, seemingly going well. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. Getting back to Maggie, uh, what I'll say is that, you know, so you're saying that you broke up with mm-hmm. your partner mm-hmm. and you have tried to reconcile a bunch of times and you decided at some point you wanted to draw a boundary and you and your therapist agreed that that was the right course of action. Then you listen to my podcast and, and I will provide a, what I believe an accurate conceptualization of the personality disorder, which promotes some compassion from a lot of people. It's like, oh, right. I, they're not jerk faces. They don't wake up in the morning and say, "I'm going to be a jerk face." They, they've been relationally traumatized, and their narcissism is a, is a defense, mm-hmm. and that promotes compassion, which is good. But that, what that doesn't mean is that we have to live with those people. You know, I've said this many, many times in the podcast, and I'm not saying, Maggie, that you're supposed to be this way, but I want to provide some uh, perspective or some permission or something. Not they need my permission, but some normalization of this, which is that for me, I am an expert on diagnosing people with personality disorders or other kinds of issues. And I absolutely will diagnose people around me in my personal and professional life, whether I'm accurate or not. It's hard to know. I'm probably biased, you know, very mm-hmm. likely biased. But <laughs> but at the very least, I, I think I can, I'm getting close to the mark by identifying some people as like, wow, their relational trauma is are causing a lot of suffering for me and I'm guessing a billion times more suffering for them, but I'm me being close to them is causing me a lot of grief, a lot of pain, a lot of fear, a lot of me being dumped on a lot of, you know, nights staring into the darkness, feeling like crap because of the way they treated me. Mm. And I know that, you know, cause the, you know, in, in our field, Bob, of psychotherapy, there's a tradition of being upfront about your own problems, right? And so I'll have colleagues or professors or students or something, you know, and so we often know like the the deepest, darkest traumas that we've been through. Right. And so I'll know, I like, oh, that person I feel terrible around and, and I know their traumas and I know where it comes from. But that doesn't mean I want to be around them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not their therapist. Yeah. So, Absolutely. There are times when there are some people that I will experience as harming me. I'll conceptualize them. I'll have compassion. And I will also 
move away from them yeah. slowly or quickly yeah. because life is short and, and it sucks and I feel bad and, and I might be another person abandoning this person, but I'm not, I wasn't put on this planet for that job. I was put on a planet to do other things. I think I wasn't put on a planet to martyr myself for other mm-hmm. people. And I realize that's terrible. You know, Is it? it, well, it doesn't sound terrible to me. I mean, it's terrible for the people that are, that have a thousand more suffering that I'm feeling from them. And I'm adding to it by moving away from them. You know, they're treating me like crap. Like you have relational traumas, but you don't treat me like crap. Well, that's Other good. people with relational traumas will treat me like crap. I don't reject you. <laughs> I've never rejected you, but I will reject these other people. So <sighs> it seems to me that when we feel guilty about a thing, that's when we think that we should take some kind of action. But are the ways in which you make contribution to the world satisfying to you? Are they good enough? You're a good guy. <sighs> I think, thank you. But I, I, th- I think it is a lesser of two evils. I, I don't think there's any way out of the k- dilemma without something bad happening. So, so let's say hypothetical situation. I have a colleague at work uh, who I'm very close to and they treat me like crap yeah. because of their relational traumas. Yeah. And I am legit suffering. Like think real bad. I'm getting sweaty. I'm, you know, there are two, three days out of the week where I'm ruminating on something that they said, or I'm trying to please them a lot or, you know, just it's really, I'm getting stressed out. I'm losing sleep. Um, I presume they're not workable. Like they're not saying, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Or, right. Right. There's okay, no, got it. or very little of it anyway, yeah. you know, and I am trying, I'm doing my best, you know, politically and diplomatically sure, and of course. trying to lead the way I'll apologize. They don't reciprocate mm-hmm. this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and so now the dilemma is, and I conceptualize them and I know what's going on and I even kind of like them on a certain level, mm-hmm. you know? So now the dilemma is, if I stay with them, I retain the relationship, which I kind of want. I am able to believe that I'm being altruistic and enact my altruism and also help this individual. And maybe slowly over time, by staying close to them and by leading by example, they can change. Not only for our relationship, but for other relationships. Uh, the bad side of that, obviously, is that I'm staring into darkness every night, ruminating on something that they said or what they did to me or, you know, or my self-esteem is slowly degrading over time. On the other side of the dilemma is I leave them and either slowly or quickly, gray rock them or whatever, as we t- say sometimes. And I, on that side, the pro, obviously, I don't have to deal with the abuse, but on the negative, I have to live with the fact that I abandon someone that already has a thousand abandonments and I've added to that pile, which gives them more fuel for the fire of their defenses and they're going to harm other people. And they're obviously not going to feel good about themselves even. And I, and I'm also losing that relationship, which I kind of like, kind of like that person. Uh Understood. So neither of these options are good. Nope. And so I, I, I'm not going to say that, you know, one option is like obvious, but I will say I usually choose door number two. (laughs) If not all the time. Is door number two the one where you leave? Leave. Yeah. 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 I, I, find, what do you, I find myself feeling perfectly fine with that. Yeah. Like, like, that's okay. Yeah. You know, like, you don't know that you're sticking around is actually a good thing. Yeah. You don't know that you're leaving is a bad thing. You know it's a sad thing or a painful thing. You know it probably having an impact on the other person. But is it the part of the journey that they needed to find, um, you know, to hit bottom, as they say in the CD, in the chemical dependency world, you know, you can't raise the bottom. Is it, is it, is it a step in that direction? It very well might be. You just can't know. Yeah. I don't think it's any, I don't think anything positive comes from that. Um, the people that I have done this with, I know them after the fact and they don't grow. Not seemingly. I don't know that, obviously, because I'm not close. But Do you think everybody's helpable? Right. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I certainly tried and beat my head up against the wall, right. and nothing changed. Yeah. It just got worse. It, there was like just a cycle to the abuse. You yeah. know what I mean? It was right. like, oh, things are good. No, they're not right. getting better. Kind of similar to right. what, the, what they wrote in. Right. So that's a good question and hard to know the answer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't. 
I'll tell you this, I don't stare into the darkness feeling guilty. <laughs> but as I say it out loud, I don't exactly feel, I don't feel good about it. Well, yeah, like, right. I, I, I don't, who would feel good about it? I mean, you don't feel good about it, but it's clear that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Have you ever done this before? Have you ever said, oh, that person, I'm pretty sure has an issue and I am going to back slowly out of the door? Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel bad? No. Yeah. Yes, I do. I do feel bad. Because you know their issues. You kind of, because, you know, you're like me. You yeah. get to know people and you're like, oh, yeah, I have a conceptualization as to why they're treating me like crap based on their childhoods. Yeah. Not their fault. Right, right. Uh, all true. And then, you know, um, one thing that's true for me, though, is I'm working pretty hard at minding the store and being clear about what's mine and what's not mine. And I can see staying in relationships for all the wrong reasons. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to, you know, like my, my value is in my utility. And so therefore I know I'm doing a good job if I'm completely depleted. That hasn't really been a formula for success. Right. I don't know that, um, my drowning will give anybody else, help anybody else break the surface and breathe. I don't know that that's true. And I'm not thinking that both of us drowning is a really great thing either. It's so much easier for me on the outside sure. to tell you, don't take shit from people, reject away. <laughs> but when I, but when I think when about you, it for myself, right, of course, because as I hear you talking and I, I think I even know who you're talking about on some level, because we've yeah. talked about these things. I'm like, yeah, dude, just move on. Yeah. Like, don't do not feel bad about that. But then of course it's two minutes after I was like, I don't know if I feel great about doing that understood yeah. yeah yeah maybe that's the benefit of friendship is and and people that love and care for us as they they remind us it's okay yeah 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 so maggie uh, the other thing i'll say is that there's a possible you know so you say that you and your therapist have identified that you are on the dependent personality disorder spectrum and it might be one hard to make decisions like this because as if you're on, if you are dependent, it's hard to feel competent in your own wants and needs. You might not even be in connected with that. Mm. So keep working on that. Mm. The, the other thing is that people who are dependent can be overly selfless and put themselves aside. They also can be fairly overly attached because yeah. of their traumas. So it's possible that part of the reason why you feel this gravitational pull to go back into the relationship is is not because you actually want the relationship but because you actually have these fears of being alone fears of disappointing other people that are based on trauma and abuse or neglect or mistreatment and not necessarily an altruistic thing that you're trying to help them right with. but but it's hard to know i mean yeah the, the other thing i'll say is i've worked with people like you maggie who are involved with a narcissistic partner and they will have that dilemma and some of them will leave and some of them will stay and it isn't without its pain and suffering to mm -hmm. stay obviously mm -hmm. but sometimes it works out you know you get a therapist you get a couples therapist you get a therapist for the narcissistic individual and you know it, you muddle your way through it and things things can work but again keep keep going to therapy yeah anonymous patron says what is meant by the term emotional availability what are some signs that a romantic partner or potential partner is emotionally available as opposed to being emotionally unavailable? Bob, what do you think? Um, I heard Sue Johnson coining this A-R-E acronym. Um, uh, uh, let's see. Res responsive, engaged, and the A is accessible. Accessible, responsive, and engaged. Um, that would be my definition of emotional availability. So available, meaning that they are what? What does that mean? What's available? It means that they'll give me attention. And they're uh, aware enough of you that if you alert them, they will, they will turn to you. They'll turn. Yeah. And then the attention they give me will have an element of compassion and care. And their attention will be full, not half, halfway. Okay. So that's emotional availability? That's how I would describe it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it depends on the definition. Uh, that's one definition. Essentially, that's like adult attunement yeah. is, is what attunement. Sue is talking about. The other angle to emotional availability is 
being emotionally vulnerable. Like oh, right. If, of course. If you have a partner who is emotionally unavailable, then they come home from work and they seem upset, but they don't, you know, what's wrong? They're like, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. You know, that would, that would be emotionally unavailable. Or when you are, you know, your mom dies and you're sad and your partner it, is just kind of there. Yeah. But not really like, how you doing? And right. I, I'm sad too. And are you sad? Like, so, but it's not really a clinical term and no. there's a lot of different definitions. But some signs that someone is emotionally available is when you signal the need for support, effectively, the other person is attuned. So that's the Sue Johnson. And even if you don't signal well, they might still surmise what you're feeling and reach out to you. Mm-hmm. So that, that, those would be some signs that I would say. Yeah. Up, up to your patron, Brian, from the Bay Area, says, should I list myself on Yelp when starting a private practice? On a previous podcast, I heard you talk about a highly competent supervisee of yours who received a negative review on Yelp, which made things very difficult for her to practice. On the other hand, one of the reasons why I chose my current therapist, who I really enjoy working with, is because of his positive reviews on Yelp. Bob, what do you think? Oh, well, I'm old and I don't use the Internet. So um, I haven't. This is the first time I've heard a story of somebody using Yelp that was successful. So. If it were me, but I'm definitely me and I'm not you, and um, I would say no. Yeah. Right. I haven't heard of very many people finding therapists on Yelp either. I'm sure it happens. Sure. But the main places people look for therapist therapist listings is on Psychology Today. Finding reviews of therapists, though, that's kind of hard because most people don't write reviews of therapists. And in fact, it's against our ethics to ask our clients to write a review. Oh, yeah. Don't ask. Yeah. So, you know, most reviews happen because people, hey, review us on Yelp. Help us out, you know. Plus, there's a lot of stigma about going to therapy. And so there's a disincentive there. Um, so you're saying, should you, should you list yourself on Yelp when starting a private practice? Well, your private practice is much more dependent on other things rather than Yelp. Yeah. And I would venture to say that 90% of therapists either aren't on Yelp or don't even know they're on Yelp, <laughs> you know? So um, Yelp is definitely not a major avenue. Might it be one of the 50 things that could help to get clients? Yes, absolutely. But as I talked about in a previous podcast, Shannon, my uh, supervisee who's actually been on the podcast before, she had a negative review on Yelp from what seemed to be a completely unglued, distorted client who I think just had like half a session with her or something like that. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. And it was just completely unglued uh, uh, review on Yelp. And she just had this one review. And according to her perspective, her private practice completely tanked because it's normal for people to Google your, you know, when you get a therapist referral, it's normal to Google that person. And for whatever reason, this Yelp review was maybe one of the first things that came up and she fought it. She would go to Yelp and say, look, you know, this, I think the client might not have even actually been in office. I think they had just, you know, started to email and, and, it didn't work out, and wow. th- I think it was something like that. Like it was, it was completely unjustified. Shannon reached out to Yelp. They said they can't take it down. They won't take it down. Mm-hmm. And um, she tried to get other people to write reviews for her to, you know, maybe even just friends or something. Right, right, right. To kind of change it to change the algorithm a little bit, and it didn't help. And her, her, according to her, her practice completely ended and she was one of the most successful post-grad private practice practitioners i'd ever worked with her practice took off she had within i don't know six months she had like a full case of all the kind of clients she wanted she wanted adults and couples and so if you're not on yelp then you're not now anyone can register a you on yelp by the way like anyone you can register a business on yelp without the business's consent in fact most businesses are probably registered without their consent because that's the Yelp is a, it's like Wikipedia, you know, it's, it's user built. So, but if you don't create a Yelp page, then you're not likely to get as many, you know, reviews. So it's up to you, uh, Brian, but if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't bother with Yelp. There, there's so many other ways that are more legit in terms of getting clients. Become an expert at something and then 
make it known that you are an expert at something. That's the best way I can think of to start a practice. That and being on local Facebook groups with therapists and gobbling up all the referrals that you get, because there's a lot of Facebook groups of people saying, hey, I need a therapist in this area, blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, Patron Natasha, good old Natasha from California. She says, I've noticed a pattern in my disorganized attachment and wondered if it was a common experience. If something even slightly humiliating happens, it can send me into days of withdrawing from people. And the event will play in my mind over and over and over again. I think it's because the trust I extend to another person feels betrayed. Mm. I frequently fantasize about socializing with ease and having close attachments the way other people seem to just meld with others. Is this a well-known presentation, humiliation triggered by disorganized behavior? Is is that a schema commonly seen in disorganized people? Bob, what do you think? I How can... do you feel about humiliation? Oh, yeah, it's the worst. Yeah, uh, the only I, I don't I don't know how to speak to this question about schemas and and whether or not it's common. I can say this though that humiliation and shame have at times gotten the better of me really fast and flipped my brain on its end, and they're really hard to come back from. Well, what's an example? What do we mean by humiliation? Mm, I'm trying to think of something that I feel safe enough or comfortable enough talking about. <laughs> there should be so many things to choose from. <laughs> Uh, well, I have one. Sure. For you. Oh, great. Your birthday party, um, you, uh, had some bathroom troubles. You were in the bathroom for a while. This birthday party I was just at. Oh, I was in the bathroom for a while. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't notice it. Yeah. But then you told me about it later. You were, you were like, later you're like, yeah, sorry. I was in the bathroom for a while. I was having some issues. Is this okay to have in the podcast? Yeah, sure. You're like, yeah, I was having some issues, you know, later on at night. And I was like, oh, I didn't even, because we were watching a movie at the yeah, time. Yeah. And I didn't, I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't actually notice you were gone. Yeah. And does that kind of thing, is that humiliation? No, that one, that one didn't really, that didn't really bug me. Oh. Um, is, is your therapist showing up late a little humiliating? Humiliating. No, that can be irritating and a little bit anxious, but not. It doesn't cause humiliation. That's not, I'm not, what I'm saying isn't 100% true, but it's mostly true. Yeah. Um, God, I think it'd be easy for me to talk about a time I was humiliated. Colleen calling you out on something? Like, yeah. there you go again. Yeah, just... yeah, that'd do it. No, I want to be more specific than that. Like, I wanted just a good, juicy one. Yeah. A good, juicy humiliation. Boy, they're hard. Yeah. Uh, mm, that's a small one. No, I can't use that. That's not big enough. Let's see. Well, tell us anyway. Okay. When I was in college, I took a creative writing class and somebody wrote what to me was a really just wonderful, heartfelt story. I don't even remember what it was about, but it was about something bad happening to the person in the story. And I remember reading it and feeling like, whoa, that's really compelling. And I said to her in class, did that really happen to you? I didn't know that's a no-no. Apparently, that's a no-no. Um, or at least it wasn't that class because my teacher said... Right, right, right. That's a really good humiliation kind of... That's a quintessential... Like, you stepped in it. Yeah. In a, in a group of in people. a group of people you, that You I showed that you were, a, a, I don't know, an amateur or something. Yeah, right. And so the teacher said, oh, we don't really... We're not really going to talk about that. Like, everyone was in on the... Everyone knew that. I guess. And you were, like, everyone's looking at, oh, he's not one of us. He's, or, right. Oh, he, look at him. Oh, amateur or, hour. Or so the story goes. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, that was embarrassing. And it didn't, it, that one followed me through the, you know, the good thing about classes that they only last for 15 weeks and then you're done. Um, but that's pretty minor. I mean, there's juicier ones. Just think of one that I feel okay talking about. <laughs> this is, and it's hard to do. It's hard to find a, a really... Well, what about like, you know, you take a lot of pride in being a therapist. I do. So are there humiliating... Oh, God, replete. I'm not talking about those either. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you don't have to say the specific, but when you have those moments... Sure. Does, a, you know, patron Natasha, good old Natasha, she says that 
you know, it triggers this disorganized attachment and it, it, she ruminates on it yeah. and she feels like maybe she's being betrayed on some level. Like she's being ostracized, I guess. And in those moments she fantasizes about like, why can't I be like normal people that just sort of move through social experiences with grace and ease? Like, why can't I be like that? Um, her different her experience is different from mine. She feels rejected, and I feel rejectable. So I can't I can't really speak to the feeling of ostracized. Mm, right. That's interesting. So she's asking about schema. So if I was to interpret what you're saying is that for Natasha, maybe the schema that was developed in response to early childhood needs not being met is I am going to be betrayed. People, mm-hmm. people will betray me, mm. or I deserve to be betrayed, mm. or people are inherently bad and going to betray me based on good reasons. When Natasha was young, that that would be developed for you. It is, I am not good enough to not be humiliated. Correct. (laughs) Not that I'm going to get betrayed, but of course I'm being humiliated because I'm a bad person. Yeah. Yeah. And then when that gets triggered, what happens? Um, I suffer a lot. I tend to avoid if I can. Um, I go quiet. I withdraw. I um, often, Is it because you're trying to... What are you trying to do when you're withdrawing? Is it just... Just, keep, just avoid it all. Avoid it. Yeah. And I, I don't imagine a universe in which I'm forgivable if I have transgressed or um, that my point of view can ever be like... You know, there's always two sides to a story, right? There's never just the one side that my point of view actually has any validity. You know, I'm just like a bad guy, flat bad guy. Where'd you go? A memory. Um, I was, let's see, I think this is okay. I was um, visiting my brother. I, I was visiting my family. This is many, many years ago. Visiting my family a long time ago. And, uh, um, I was hanging out with Danny, my, my younger brother, Danny, he and I are very close and his wife and his wife's one or two of his wife's sisters and a partner or somebody, there's a bunch of us. We went and played some pool and then we were driving back from whenever we were playing pool and, and they got into this bickery kind of thing. And I don't remember what it was about, if it was politics or something family-ish and it felt really uncomfortable and I was really annoyed. And I said something like, you know, I didn't really like the way this was going or I really wish we were getting along better or something. I don't remember what. And he got really, really angry with me. He got really angry with me and he wouldn't speak to me for a day or so. He calls me the next day and he said something to me that I thought was an inaccurate interpretation of what what actually took was taking place. He made a kind of interpretation of my behavior that I think was, it wasn't meritless, but it was tangential to, it was unrelated to what happened in the car. And I remember just sort of accepting it and feeling really, really ashamed. And, um, uh, so long ago I might be my memory of it isn't so great Um, but I remember when he said the thing about me I remember accepting it as if it were fact and being sort of surprised and like nonplussed by it like shocked like oh is that is that what I am only because it was said not because it's true I think for me it's actually quite hard for me to hang on to what I think is true about me or what, sorry, I, boy, I'm doing stand behind this one. It's hard for me to hang on to what I know is true about me in the face of another person's dissent. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. I guess. So is is the feeling like, yeah, I'm a bad person. Yeah. That kind of thing. And they know it. Yep. And they're just, they're, all they're doing is just calling it out. Like, you know, Things fall down, not up. Bob's a bad guy. Yeah, that. Right. They're just they're just highlighting a fact. So humiliation, at its harsher forms, that's where you go. Yes, it's interesting. Yeah. 
So for you, the schema is, because that's the main schema you have, or right. the, yeah. is there's something wrong with me. Something wrong with me. And I need to hide it. Otherwise, no one's going to like me. Yeah. And for other people, their disorganized attachment is based on people are going to abandon me. Yeah. But you don't really have that one. I don't have that they're going to reject me. I have the more like, well, of course they're going to reject me. Because there's something wrong with me. Because there's something, you know. But other people have the schema of just like people are untrustworthy. Yeah. People are dangerous. People are, right. And so when I'm humiliated, it's just another, you know, trigger of, right. I am not safe. Yeah. When you are being humiliated and made to feel like there's something wrong with you, do you feel unsafe? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just don't think that it's anybody's fault but mine. I'd say that might be the, the difference is perhaps when a person is ostracized, they feel as though the other person is treating them unjustly. And when I'm rejected, I sort of like, well, yeah, of course. Right. I mean, who wouldn't reject me? Yeah. I'd say that me and whoever's writing in there, I can't remember their name. Natasha. Natasha. I'd say she and I are maybe two sides of a coin there. Right. That's interesting. And when that happens to you now, you're able to modulate it some by talking about it with others and yourself. Yes, yeah, some. I'd I guess I'm still... looking for some reassurance that you're okay. <laughs> you're looking for that? Yeah. Oh. So you don't have to give it to me. Yeah, I probably can't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the tail still wags the dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not as much as it used to, you know. Well, that's reassuring a one little of bit. The, that's one of the benefits of age and experience, right? Is yeah. At least my age and my experience yeah. help that settle some. Well, on behalf of the listeners and me, you certainly don't deserve to feel that way about yourself. Mm, thank you. I don't think anyone does, but no. particularly you um, don't deserve to feel bad about yourself because you made an honest mistake. Yeah, I've made a few. Yeah, they're hard to live down. Um, I, um, I this happens to me fairly regularly. I think of things that I've done, and I just feel like, ugh, like I'm reliving it like a flashback, and I just have regret about, you know, ugh, like I wish I could kind of go back in time and shift this, that, and change the thing or whatever. And um, that's fairly that's fairly regular. More, more, more or less, but it's pretty regular. Yeah, I have it too. Do you have that too? Oh yeah, I have it as a professor, mainly. There's something about being a professor that really triggers. Like if I, if I, even if I think I made a mistake, mm. I will ruminate for so long about it. I've always been this way, though. Yeah, I remember that when you started, you yeah. had that a lot. Yeah, I still have a good dose of it. Really? I think all professors do, honestly. Uh, I'm not saying that to normalize myself, but well, I'm saying that because I, I want people to take care of their professors if they can, <laughs> because they always seem like they've got it all together and they have all the confidence in the world and they have, you know, the world is their oyster, at least in their discipline. But I don't know a single professor that doesn't have what I have. And when I was more novice, I couldn't admit this because I was too ashamed of it. I, I would just, I don't know what I would do. I would just ruminate on my own. But yeah, throughout my career as a professor, for the first, I've talked about this before, for the first 15 years, 15 years. 15 years. I had to take a beta blocker, which is a an anxiety medication before yeah. I taught. I remember. And that was the only time I would take that med. I wouldn't take it when I performed with my band on stage. I, I wouldn't take it when I would do something that was really scary, starting a podcast. I, you know, the only context I would ever do it in was when I taught. And it was just, you know, six to 15 students that seemingly like me, you know, yeah. but yet there's something about it that failure is so much more meaningful there. You know, like as a podcast, if I fail, which I have, that can feel pretty bad too. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to say that podcasting isn't without that element, but mm -hmm. yeah, but it it's probably 25% of what it is to be. A, and I've been a professor for twice as long, you know? Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, I'm currently ruminating on a couple perceived mistakes that I've made over the past couple weeks, but even the past few months. Really? 
things that like you know there are certain things that some something bad will happen where you will have screwed up or you or people think you've screwed up and you don't know if you screwed up or you don't think you screwed up and you just this this hamster wheel is going on uh-huh. in your mind and and it just sort of pops into your head well that you know that's what happens to me and what's your schema with that do you know that's a good question i think it's similar to what natasha and you were talking about something about like well, you know what it is, is self-worth being attached to how groups of people see me, which is a, you know, a narcissistic quality <laughs> that the dependency on crowds vision of you. And that's how you see yourself. Right. Like, I'll never forget. I, I Todd, actually, our friend Todd. Oh, Todd. I was talking with him because he's he's not exactly extroverted. You know, he he's shy. <laughs> You know, exactly. He's no. quiet. He's quiet. Very quiet. Guy. Big guy, like six foot oh, three. Yeah. Big bushy head of hair. Oh yeah, yeah. And great guy. But quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, he was. He would never impose on anyone. Mm-hmm. Always a smile. Mm-hmm. I was talking with him about teaching, and I was. You know, this is fifteen years ago or something. And I was just like, yeah, it's just such a drain on my on my self esteem. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm getting all positive feedback, like I can't, I just know I'm screwing up all the time and, or I'm constantly trying not to screw up. He said, huh, that's weird. You know, cause I give present, he works at Boeing. He's like, I give presentations to like thousands of people at Boeing all the time. Really? Yeah. He would talk about how, and, and with almost no prep, he would just, as an engineer, he would get up on stage and present to all these people. And he said, like, he said, I don't get nervous at all. And I was like, wait, what? Because, I'm extroverted. Yeah. And socially way more confident, I think, than he is, or so I thought. He's getting up up on stage and doesn't think about it at all. But I think it's because for people like Todd, I think, they just don't hold a lot of weight in how other people see them. They just think, yeah, well, you know, maybe 10% of the people thought I flopped or they thought I said something that was untoward or I offended. Maybe I offended a few people, but... I don't, it's not really where I hold my self-esteem. For me, I, I hold a part of my self-esteem into how how a crowd sees me. That is a narcissistic quality where you're turning to, please define me, right? You're turning to others and crowds specifically, even if it's just a crowd of three students for, you know, who am I, you know? How come teaching and not playing gigs? Because I don't hold my self-esteem and my ability as a musician, um, I know I'm actually not that good. I, I know that I've actually, I just, and in fact, I don't even like to impose my music on other people, generally speaking, because I just know that I'm not that good. Hmm. I've always known that I've, I've always been extremely ambivalent about my so-called talent in music. Hmm. You know, I, there's certain parts of it where I'm like, like sometimes I'll listen back to something I recorded and I'll just be like, God, that whole thing is just crap. You know, I'll just, <laughs> why did I even bother with that? Damn. So I'm okay. You know, if, if I perform on stage musically and people are like, yeah, that's pretty shitty. I'm like, yeah, you know, what, what are you going to do? At least I gave it a shot. But with Damn. being a professor, it's my intellect that is on the line, uh, uh, which is much more somehow. Somehow. You know, I, I think it's because at a young age, like at the age of, I remember this, I've probably told this story before, but I'm seven years old and my brother is in Japan and for a um, exchange student thing and we're at church and someone, I'm with my dad and so I, no, I would have been, I would have been 10 and my, one of the other church goers comes up to my dad and says, uh, so Mark's in Japan, yeah, Mark's in Japan. Um, when you call him on the phone in long distance, how do you, how do you figure out what the time, what time it is? Cause it's, you know, it's a t- time zone. It's also across the dateline. And my dad said, um, well, we, uh, we, we subtract seven hours, but add a day. So that's, that's Japan. At least that's what I remember my dad saying. That's higher math. So you subtract seven hours, but you add a day. So like right now it's, you know, almost two o'clock. And so we would subtract, seven hours and it would be what would that be <laughs> eight uh so two uh five from so it'd be seven seven in the morning seven in the morning but it's tomorrow right oh it's seven in the morning tomorrow in japan, in japan. right 
but then I, but so I'm 10 years old and on the fly, I said, without even thinking about it, and I was just kind of shooting the dark, I said, or you could just add 17 hours. And my dad and the, and the friend, they both look at me and they're like, what? Add 17 hours. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, you know, cause 17 and seven add up 24. And mm-hmm. I, and I was like, what did I, what just came out of my mouth? Like, I, I don't, I, I probably was just making crap up at that point. And I, and I sort of you know, mic dropped and walked away. I was 10 years old. I can remember it like it was yesterday because I, I felt like, huh, I just figured something out. Like I used my brain. Another instance, which is even more telling, and I've told this story in the podcast before too, is I was really into astronomy from kindergarten. I would read, you know, astronomy books. I didn't really know what I was reading. I had no mentor. I had no ability to really figure out what I was looking at, but I would pick up things here and there. And the one thing I did know was that Neptune the uh, and Pluto actually will cross paths. You know, back then they thought Pluto was a planet, right? It was, it was classified as a planet. Uh-huh. And so you know, it was called Pluto the ninth planet, but actually sometimes it's the eighth planet because it actually has such a, you know, I uh, know that. odd um, orbit that it actually crosses, you know, Neptune. Mm. And so... I am probably seven years old. We're at the dinner table and, you know, my younger brother's there. My older siblings are there. All six of us standing around, you know, sitting around a circular table and eating. And and somehow the topic came up and I might have said it. It's like, well, you know, Pluto sometimes is the eighth planet. And my brother looked at me and was just like, no, 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 no. Pluto is the, always, it's the ninth planet. You're dumb. You know, that you know, sibling talk. You're kids. It's just how you talk to each other, right? And I was like, and I, I said, no, 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 uh, Pluto uh, crosses the orbit of, of Neptune. Sometimes it's, it's the eighth planet. And, and he was like, and I, in my head, so in my, on one hand, I felt like hurt that I was being told I was stupid. Yeah. But on the other hand, I thought, if I can fish him to double down on this statement, <laughs> I am going to humiliate him. <laughs> and he doubled down and I said, hold on a second. I ran upstairs and I got my astronomy book and I slammed it down the table and I showed him black and white crossing of the orbits between Pluto and Neptune. And I said, sometimes it's the eighth planet. And my brother didn't say a single thing. And I, I just felt like oh. I was on the top of the world oh. to, to, to overcome. I mean, my brother's seven years older than yeah, me. Right. So it wasn't like we were ever on the same competition nah. field. You know, we were never intellectually at, you know, yeah. you know You're in, in competition with each other. I'm this tiny little yeah. thing compared to him. But because I knew something, I knew something, I was able to overcome the master i was able to best the big older brother that always won everything that we ever did i was able to win and no one else at the table knew this i knew this juicy and i had the research behind me i had the science and i slammed it on the table nice i don't even know if i have that story right but but even if it's kind of right it was formative for me to have a place in the world right uh a meaning, a purpose, <laughs> a usefulness, if you will, a distinguishing quality, something that is different about me than other people. And so when I'm a professor oh, right. <laughs> and my ability to remember that seven plus 17 is 24 <laughs> right. or to screw that up. Oh, okay. Because then all the other times, I probably probably nine out of ten times, I was screwing up something. You right. know? Always trying to run away from that and toward my distinctiveness, you know, something that makes me special and worthy. And so as a professor, everything I do is potentially both vindicating of who I am and humiliating of who I am. <laughs> And it's all on display right there. All right. You're, you're standing on stage and everything out of your mouth will either make me feel like I am worthy or completely unworthy. And, and you just can't sustain that level of success day in and day out as a professor. Yeah, you're going to make mistakes. Right. And, you know, in my good moments, I'm more differentiated. I'm, I'm just like, yeah. I'll just say to my students, um, and I know some of them are listening, that... 
of course I make mistakes. <laughs> I mean, all professors make mistakes. I, and of course I'm opinionated and have weird perspectives that don't make any sense to other people. And of course I'm quirky and of course I get tired and of course I get my facts wrong sometimes. And that's okay. You know, it, I'm trying my best. I'm just a human being. I'm, and, and really as I talk myself through it as I am right now, it's like when I demote myself and I'm like, look, we're all just, and it's easy in graduate school because a lot of them are even my age. It's just like, look, we're all just here trying to do this thing. Right. And I've prepared a thing and I want you to do a thing and we're all going to have some glorious moments and some mistakes, including me. And I'm, I'm going to screw things up and I'm trying my best. To, believe me, I really am. I take this job very seriously, but you know, I'm just like anyone else and I'm, I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to make a fool out of myself and that's okay because I, I'm a fool. Everyone's a fool. <laughs> Everyone, no one is not a fool, I guess is the way to put it. Um, is that an attitude that develops with experience and practice? Because um, I can imagine being a young professor and thinking, I cannot screw up. I think I always consciously understood this, but I think I, I think part of it was mentorship, you mm -hmm. know, other people. And I, honestly, I think another part of it is now I'm, I'm the elderly professor you know, for many years, I was like extremely young. It was all people that were 20 years, 25 years older than me. And, and now that I'm the elderly professor and I'm, and I'm mentoring other people and I'm helping them and I see, you know, natural insecurity in them. I hear myself saying things to them that I'm like, well, you should probably follow that advice too. <laughs> like, let it go. You don't have to be something that doesn't exist. You don't have to be that perfect professor, that sort of fantasy about the perfect professor. Mm. You can just be a regular human being. You're at work and you're trying your best and you don't know a lot of things. Yeah. There's a lot of things you just, you literally don't, you don't know most things. That's true. And that's okay. Yeah. Like you don't have to know everything and don't, and to think that is completely narcissistic to think that you could possibly know everything. <laughs> Like, like that, the adherence to that notion is a massive fantasy and distortion. Like, let it go. Like, stop thinking of yourself as that important, you know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when I relax, I go back into that, into that mode, I guess. But I still can't really get rid of it. You know, I, like, yeah. I'm like right now I got, I have like 5% of my brain cells sort of ruminating on this thing that I did last week that I don't want to talk about. Right on. That's, um. I know we'll eventually peter out. The hamster will get tired and just move on to another wheel. But for now, that's the wheel. That's and that's what I tell myself. I'm just like, you know, you're, I, I even have a new phrase. I think I said looping. In my head, I'm like, you're looping. Looping. You're looping. And it'll loop itself out. Like, there's nothing. If you want to do something about it, do something. But if you don't, then just, you know, just let it happen. It's just going to happen. The loop. Yeah. You're going to loop a bit. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Final word, Bob. What do you say? Oh, you know me. I'm terrible at the final word. I have no summary. I, I can't even remember what we talked about. Humiliation, Bob. How can we help people with humiliation? Breathe. I guess one thing is ain't nothing anybody done that hasn't been done a gazillion times before. And the world keeps spinning. And that does it for that episode of Psychology <laughs> in Seattle. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.